Hello, hello. Welcome to our Job to STEM podcast. Christine Ye is an astrophysicist and a STEM advocate. Most of her work at the moment centers around pulsar glitches and interior physics, but she's also completed work in galactic spectroscopy, astrophysical hydrodynamics simulations, and gravitational wave, working at NanoStart and the University of Washington. She won special award at ICEF 2019, and she is a registered finalist for ICEF 2020 and a Regeneron finalist as well. And in 2019, she won the International Optics and Photonics Society's special award for her research project. Christine is also a Science Olympiad National Bronze Medalist. She's part of American Astronomical Society, Sigma Psi, and Girls Rock in Science and Math. Her scientific interests are at the intersection between data science, computation, and astrophysics. So you know how much we love discovering those interconnections, and I'm really excited to jump right into this conversation. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm so glad to be on Drop the Stem. I'm glad to welcome you to the gang. Common theme we apply here in the podcast is that we go back to the roots of all things and date back a little bit in time. So the first topic centers around that idea. What sparked your interest to reach for the stars and beyond? I was one of those kids that always really liked stargazing even though I'm not necessarily in the best location for it being pretty close to a major city. But my favorite object to look at was the Pleiades Cluster, which is the Seven Sisters. And it's basically a very iconic group of stars that's really famous in both mythology and astronomy. Um, But I actually found that the science we did in primary school kind of turned me away from STEM in general. But through outside activities such as Science Olympiad and learning more about astrophysics, I eventually regained that initial love for science. Right now, my biggest inspirations are honestly astrophotography, from amateur photography I can take on my iPhone to the Hubble Space Telescope. I love looking at pictures of supernova remnants, planetary nebulae, uh, gas filaments and galaxies, and it really puts into context our place in the universe. Particularly with astrophysics, I really like that it's the way you can interface between systems. For example, if you look at the system of an accreting black hole where gas is falling in, you think about the extreme space-time and general relativity, and then also the electromagnetism, hydrodynamics, thermodynamics, and everything else working together in that system. The combination of really different time scales, size scales, and physical mechanisms in a complicated but beautiful system is really what keeps me interested in astrophysics. It's so beautiful how you put your passion into words. And as I was listening to your expansion on your enthusiasm for science, I thought about Albert Einstein, uh, whose dream was to you know, discover the amazing design of the universe, a single theory that explains everything as you've expanded on general relativity. He was someone who did not really find his place in school. And you said that general STEM education didn't really um, inspire you to move into that direction. Yeah, it's really true. I felt like in primary education, I didn't really understand the purpose of what we were doing. We just did a lot of labs and engineering activities that didn't really put things in a broader context. And so it was harder to see how they were useful to me or how they were kind of helping to explain the universe when all we were really doing is looking at one thing. 
yes, it's very single perspective in their kind of method, but it's great that she also developed a hobby for astrophotography. Since you mentioned that your location is not the best spot to do that, do you have to go on road trips to follow that passion of yours? Yeah, I've been on a couple trips around to darker areas, and then sometimes I can just try my best with my telescope and my backyard. That's great, and also your photo editing mm-hmm. on your phone. Yeah. In terms of astrophysics, you've transferred this passion and made it into a realizable action. You brought a research project to ISAF. Um, And it's about helium. Now, we've seen helium balloons, but we can also know that it's uh, a very abundant element in the universe. How does your project relate to this specific element? And I can say a noble work of yours. (laughs) Yeah, so helium-4, two protons, two neutrons, is the second most abundant atom in the universe. And it's very commonly found in what's known as the interstellar medium of galaxies, which is basically the dust and gas surrounding the stars. And so one interesting problem is how can we see that helium? And so my project involves using basically what are known as forbidden transitions to search for traces of that helium. Okay, what does forbidden transition mean? What does characterize this state of helium for? That's a great question. So in chemistry class, you might have learned about the discrete energy levels in an atom, the quantized ones, where the electrons are classically allowed to exist. And so our allowed transitions are basically between these. And so these produce the brightest spectral lines, and they're very commonly occurring in the interstellar medium. For example, in hydrogen, you have the very famous Lyman and Balmer series. But in our classical mindset, nothing else is allowed. So every other transition that's not between one of our quantized levels is considered forbidden. But the thing is, under quantum mechanics, electrons have a fun property called spin. And so helium-4 has two electrons, meaning that the spins can be aligned parallel or anti-parallel to each other, depending on how they're related. So our anti-parallel state, perihelium, has slightly higher energy than the parallel state, which is known as orthohelium. And so this is, makes up what is called a fine or forbidden transition, which is an unlikely but noticeable transition between the different energy levels of the spin states. So it's considered forbidden, but it actually is allowed and observable in certain cases. Awesome. Thank you for your clear explanation. I can tell that You've done a lot of explanations in terms of your research work, and it's so essential that you can represent those key concepts in a clear way. And what I love is that, you know, in school, we usually learn about the classical concepts of one particular subject, but when we dive deeper into that, anomalies or forbidden states can come up. So it's very cool. Yeah, it's so awesome how, you know, everything's just so complex. Absolutely. You've had the initial idea. How did you approach the research project? What was your methodology? Yeah, so I worked with data taken by a number of infrared spectrographs, um, many of which were at NASA's infrared uh, telescope facility. And I basically looked at spectra of active galactic nuclei, which are basically the brightest galaxies we can see, and um, the spectra of their interstellar medium areas or extended gas. And so I looked in the infrared for signatures of those lines, because in the lowest energy levels of helium, the fine transitions are generally in the infrared. I see. 
So you've implemented spectroscopy knowledge to measure those spiral galaxies near us. I guess that's why you can see it in a more clear manner um, in terms of distance. Yeah, um, and I developed a spectral fitting routine that was best suited for the characteristics of the galaxies in the line. And what beneficial consequences do your results bring to the field of astronomical spectroscopy? That's a great question. So the big idea in astronomy is basically we want to understand the galaxies, especially the composition and evolution of the interstellar medium, which can tell us things about stars, uh, galactic interactions, the intergalactic meeting, and things like that. And so we can figure out chemical compositions of materials using spectroscopy. Basically, you have something that's acting like a prism, and so it splits length uh, it splits light over wavelengths. And so you can search that for chemical signatures of absorption and emission from different atoms or molecules. And then based on the area of that certain peak, you can identify by mass spectroscopy to um, know which element is in your mixture of that interstellar medium. Yeah. So fine transitions are these probes of lower energy regions where there isn't enough irradiated energy to really reach the thresholds of classical transitions, which tend to have higher energy, so they're in the visible or UV. A great example is the H1 line at 21 centimeters, which really revolutionized radio astronomy in the past couple decades. So the lines are studied are a similar probe in the near infrared for low energy helium-4, and it can basically help us with astronomical spectroscopy to understand the distribution of helium and hydrogen together in galaxies, star clusters, galaxy clusters, and similar areas, and also to be able to derive the column densities, which is a great test for Big Bang nucleosynthesis. And it just provides a lot of interesting new insights on the interstellar medium. Very interesting. So your research really focused on mapping and deciphering the masses of helium in the universe, which is such an essential component uh, to the formation of the universe from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah, exactly. And congratulations on your work, because it's been awarded at ISAF, and you're a double alumna, we can say that. So what does the ISAF experience represent to you? Honestly, uh, ISAF is what I consider to be the best week of the year. <laughs> um, it's a great opportunity to share my work, receive feedback, and sometimes recognition, and also interact with so many other young scientists from all around the world. So I've met a lot of amazing states. Uh, amazing friends, both from my state and also across the world. And I really appreciate the opportunity to interact with not just other young scientists, but also the judges, which are scientists and scientific professionals. And then ISEF is also just so much fun. So my um, some of my favorite moments last year were at the mixer when the floor was shaking and the ISEF night events. <laughs> It was honestly awesome and a, honestly a great way to support high school research. And I really hope to be back. Yes, on that mixer note, <laughs> so funny to see that, you know, these passionate kids about science were measuring, <laughs> <laughs> shaking or the intensity of the floor shaking. So they were measuring it with the device. And I think it can prove that you can both work hard and play hard on the grounds of ISAF. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's what makes ISAF so great.
<laughs> and how was your judging experience? I can sense that you've had a um, pleasant experience in the auditorium hall. Yeah, I really um, enjoyed interacting with actual astronomers and physicists when I was getting judged. They had great questions, great things for me to think about. They asked a lot of tough but interesting questions that I think really made me better when uh, deciding how to continue my research and deciding how to start new projects. So I really appreciated getting all that feedback. Yes, and present you in new directions. You know, ISAF is, of course, not just a competition, but a massive learning experience that you can take um, home with yourselves. And I think it's so great to to hear that judging is not an experience that is deemed to be so nerve wracking, but actually essential in your scientific growth as well. Yeah, it's a little scary, especially since last year was my first time, but I really felt like I learned a lot coming out of it. Continuing your project, you've um, gained scientific work experience at Green Bank Observatory and Nanograv as well. Could you expand on those scientific endeavors? Yeah, so Nanograv is the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves. It's a big mouthful, but um, if you think about in 2015, when LIGO detected a gravitational wave of a black hole merger, that really revolutionized. Uh, a new field known as multi-messenger astronomy. So the idea of nanograv is very similar. Basically, you use pulsars, which are really quickly rotating neutron stars in an array across the galaxy to search for gravitational waves. So if LIGO is on the high frequency end where you can see big catastrophic events like a merger, uh, nanograv is actually on the low frequency end where you can see uh, black hole binaries that are still quite far apart and you know, just starting to emit gravitational waves. So the Green Bank Observatory is basically a group of radio telescopes in West Virginia that does lots of radio astronomy, especially pulsar searches and timing for nanograv. So I'm personally involved with the nanograv as a student member, and I've done research and projects on elements of the pulsar search pipeline, including radio frequency interference and noise removal, uh, candidate searching and selection, and timing. It sounds fascinating. So based on your explanation, glitch is a sudden increase. A steady movement can be interrupted by a glitch due to its rotational frequency. Yeah. Since you've worked on pulsar glitches, which novel regimes of soft structure in pulsar glitches did you observe during your work? Yeah, so I found several areas of evidence, or I worked with several areas of evidence, including um, glitch sizes, time scales, and recovery shapes. And I found that most of those support a very unified model of glitch recovery. So basically how the, the pulsar's rotation recovers. But I also found extremely strong evidence in individual pulsars that glitch a lot. So prolific pulsars for new microphysics. Um, to be more specific, I found evidence for a combination of quasi-periodic processes and act what's known as self-organized criticality, which is basically the same process that governs things like avalanches and sand piles. And these correspond to different microphysics models, such as starquakes, uh, vortex avalanches, and the snowplow model, which are all very interesting and have great implications for superfluidity and nuclear physics. A quick question on superfluidity can also appear with helium as a superfluid liquid. Can you like implement the methodology of microphysics 
in terms of describing this property of helium or are those two distinct concepts to bring together? In a neutron star, you have just a plain neutron superfluid, but on Earth, we can create helium superfluids. And so I think it would actually be really interesting to see if we could replicate some of the processes involved with glitches, such as vortex pinning, which is basically where vortexes get stuck in place and can't move. And so that prevents the entire thing from slowing down. So I think it would be a great way to kind of lab test the processes and see if they're actually capable of reproducing our results. I see implementing rules that are applied in a different manner and in different space to say that. (laughs) Yeah. I also did a bit of review work. Basically, there's really, really wide and diverse regimes of substructure in electromagnetic variability. So basically how what we can actually see changes, especially with the shape of the pulse and also radiative outbursts. And so uh, that was a really interesting regime I looked a little into and found some evidence for differences between different pulsars that I'll be looking more into as I continue this work. And I also found, um, I also managed to run some three component superfluid simulations, basically simulating the angular momentum transfer that happens during a glitch. And so I generated a very diverse field of rise shapes and times that would be really interesting for high cadence monitoring if we can resolve those really detailed features. Sounds fascinating. So those are your passion projects you are working at the moment, I guess, long distance due to COVID. How do you continue to work when I assume you cannot have direct lab experience? Yeah, so this work has mostly been done computationally anyway, so it wasn't a big transition. But I'm currently participating in what's known as an RU with Nanograv and continuing this work, having virtual calls, virtual research meetings, sending lots of emails, just doing lots of everything on the computer. Just a lot of back and forth communication yeah, between. Yeah, it is pretty tough to get new ideas and talk to mentors when you have to send everything over email. It really increases the amount of time you need, but it's all, it's all doable. Yeah, since you're invested in computation and that can make things easier and faster from a point of view. Talking about that, how can big data and different types of logarithms be implemented to essentially make discoveries in astrophysics? Because you are deeply invested in bringing those two fields together and make something out of the world like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it might not seem like it, but astronomy is actually now a huge data science. So one of my favorite examples, the Canadian H1 mapping experiment, or CHIME, which does work with fast radio bursts, pulsars, and cosmology, processes 30 terabits of data per second on its back end. And so today, um, nowadays, our instruments cover basically the entire electromagnetic spectrum and often cover very large areas of the sky in extremely high resolution. And in the future, with the Legacy Survey of Space and Time, which the astronomy community is very excited for, launching in 2021, it's going to scan nearly in the entire sky every three nights, detecting 10 million new objects or changes per night and producing 15 terabytes of data over a decade. So that's clearly tons and tons of data to sift through. So with all that data, there's tons and tons of ways to apply computation, algorithms, or machine learning. One exciting example is object uh, orbit determination for near-Earth asteroids. So the idea or the problem is that you have objects that are appearing to be moving across the sky, 
but because you have so much data, it's really hard to, you, you basically can't manually link them. So you build algorithms that can actually link those photos for you and develop the orbit. So two algorithms I've found really interesting are, one of them is Heliolink, which basically uses little tracklets or movement vectors. It was developed by a group at Harvard. And another is Thor, which was developed at a group actually at my local university, UW, at the Dirac Institute. Um, another interesting problem is the idea of source separation and classification. So if you have galaxies and stars, you need to be able to separate them on the sky and also tell them apart, which gives us that way you have a lot of data to do big statistics on the sky. Awesome. And you've talked about connecting objects and two different types of algorithms. So how does Thor differ from Heliolink developed by Harvard? Yeah, so the idea of Heliolink, basically um, it uses clustering and tracklets. So it takes the image, it tries to match two things, and then it kind of develops a little vector arrow that shows how it's moving. And so if you project that into a certain parameter space, you can actually uh, develop, you can basically see how they cluster. And so it uses that clustering to develop the orbit. Thor does not use tracklets. It instead projects everything into a heliocentric view, which is basically um, if, you were at, if you were at the sun, and looking around, how would it look? And so that's what makes it different because it doesn't need tracklets or even to cross-correlate images. It just looks for orbits in the sky. I see. So different methodology, uh, but they sound really cool. Reflecting on those new discoveries, how do you think that the relationship between society and science will alter in the future? Because with that sufficient amount of data do you think that people who might not be closely related to science but interested in astrophysics would start doing their own research because of the availability of the open sources yeah so there's great potential for what's known as citizen science um citizen science i think really got its start in astronomy so nowadays there's tons of projects such as Zooniverse, which is uh, on Zooniverse where you can classify galaxies or search for planets or look at the Martian surface. And so those are all ways that scientists deal with their data by actually allowing citizen scientists or just normal people to work with real astronomical data. There's also tons and tons of archives from every telescope. Astronomy is very open source. And so even though there's a propriety period, um, most data is openly available after a certain number of months. And so that's really a great opportunity for anyone interested in astronomy to try working with data. And then there's a really interesting project uh, known as Einstein at Home, which is also citizen science. But instead of working with data, you can actually simulate black holes by offering to use your computer's uh, basically processing power to help on a massively parallel simulation. So those are all really, really interesting ways that uh, normal people can get involved with astronomy through this big data. Einstein couldn't have thought that he would uh, someday be at uh, other people. <laughs> so I think it's fascinating that astronomy is such an open field and allows that availability to people and start doing their own research projects as well.
And in terms of application developments, there are a large variety of applications you can implement. Like I know the one which in which you use your iPad or your tablet and you point it to the sky and it actually shows you the different stars that are right above your head. Yeah, I've actually got that app or a similar app. And I use it when I stargaze when I don't feel like looking at the maps as much. That's great. <laughs> and you can use it in your bedroom when the roof is blocking the way. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about envisioning the future, but do you think that there would be other discoveries in astrophysics or any related fields that will alter the way we look at STEM in the future? Yeah, so there's been a lot of people are very interested in unifying general relativity and quantum mechanics so it's workable on every scale because right now things break down at very small and very large and very extreme scales and so some people are have been interested in string theory for that reason even though string theory doesn't many astronomers don't really think much about string theory because it doesn't have observable consequences that we know of right now so it would be very hard to detect. But the idea of developing quantum gravity or basically a new framework that describes the entire universe has a lot of potential, I think inspires a lot of people to go into physics. When you mention string theory, I cannot stop myself and think about the Big Bang Theory <laughs> when Sheldon is trying to discover the rules in string theory. Um, and that's why I think it's a brilliant show. Quantum gravity is such... Um, I think exciting idea to dive deep into quantum is used to accelerate things that has been a roadblock for the last 50 or 60 years. So it's definitely an interesting field to tap into and see how it's going to alter in the future. Yeah, and it's a very tough field to do work in because you're essentially throwing away everything you think you know about the universe and trying to develop something that can recreate everything you see, but in a totally different way. Absolutely. Inspiring to hear you expand on all of those discoveries and how you envision the future of science. And asking from you, being an accomplished science presenter, what are your techniques or what's your motivation? How do you make the wonders of STEM exciting to your audience? So I think my number one tip would to basically would be to tell a story. So research is a journey and your presentation could, should kind of express that, how you came up with the idea, the roadblocks you ran into, and hopefully the big new insight or whatever you came up with it at the end. But in that respect, you should also know your audience and your goals of the speech and keep it appropriate. So for example, third graders might not want to know about how you got stuck for two weeks trying to write a certain line of code. Um, and the other thing would be to really sound interested in what you're talking about. So watch your inflection, tone, and body language. And you can improve that by being prepared and just practicing a lot. Yes, even by standing in a position while your arms are a little bit away from your body and your palms are facing forward, that you're open to receive new information can signal nonverbal communication signs to the judges. Yeah. Um, nonverbal communication is a huge thing. You might not think it, but it's like a really large fraction of what people actually take away from your speech. You know, they might only be able to get one or two big ideas from your work, but they will definitely see how you feel about it and how you're behaving. 
Absolutely. And you know, the interesting thing is that when interviewing ISA finalists, one of the major things when it comes to judging and how to make it a great experience is they're telling me that you got to speak with passion and enthusiasm because that's really the secret ingredient that will capture the attention of the judges. And I've lived that through, you know, when it comes to the first or the second one, you might still have those nerves going around. But when you become more confident in talking about your presentation, that kind of energy really goes through your words. Yeah. And practice always helps with that. Even if you just practice to your family or to a pet, it really helps to get over those nerves if you've done it a couple times. That is really true. Uh, practice makes perfect in that sense. And it also exposes you a little bit that I <laughs> think does not for judging day. <laughs> You're invested in an initiative called Girls Rock in Science and Math, uh, which I fully support. And what would your message be to girls pursuing science? Um, there are a lot of listeners who are continuing research right now, and um, it's very inspiring to receive messages, listening to the podcast, and all of your inspiring stories help them move forward in their research work. So what would you say to those girls? So I think my biggest message would be to just don't be afraid to speak up and promote yourself. Because statistically, women tend to be shyer in professional environments and suffer from imposter syndrome more and generally downplay their accomplishments, which can be kind of harmful to them professionally. But I think just understand that you are smart and capable and your work you're doing is really great, high quality. And that can kind of help you start to break down that imposter syndrome. And also try to make connections with both peers and mentors which is especially helpful if there are other women and they can both act as role models for women in science and also help advise you on topics both in general and specific to the experience of a woman in science. And, you know, you can do it. Science is for everyone. Absolutely. You can develop an, another type of connection with women in science. Of course, interactions with men in the field are so valuable. And I could talk about my own experience that I could learn a lot. But um, there is an inspirational power of receiving encouraging messages from accomplished women in STEM. And you've raised such a valid point on accepting accomplishments. Downplaying yourself does not help your case <laughs> at all. There's interaction on YouTube when uh, a woman actually compliments an other woman oh you look so beautiful today and the response is oh no it's not <laughs> true whole chain reaction continues until someone says thank you and then everybody looks at her in <laughs> such an awkward way <laughs> and I think that also applies here yeah definitely has there Anything being in your research work when you felt like you wanted to stop or has it been a continuous effort that you put in your research work? Have you experienced any roadblocks? Yeah, so there are tons of things that like when you come onto a research project, when you just start it, it's really hard to get oriented. So you have to learn, you know, different data formats. You might have to learn a new coding language or new programming techniques. And you just have to like it takes a lot of really a lot of hard work to get to a point where you can call uh, where you can be happy with the research project. But I think all that hard work and all the roadblocks you go through are part of what makes the final product really worth it and gives you that kind of fuzzy feeling of, oh, I did it. <laughs> yes, it gives you a 
really rewarding neurological boost mm-hmm. during of the best, the energy and the time you've put in that work. And perhaps that discipline you have in yourself might come from the fact that you're training under an advanced Russian ballet curriculum, performing major roles in productions such as the Nutcracker and Don Quixote. So what are the best and less favorable parts of professional dancing? Could you expand on that professional hobby of yours? Yeah, so I think my absolute favorite part is just the work you do, the constant work towards perfection. It involves a really systematic, logical study of human anatomy and also human physics, as well as the classical technique. And I just really love going to class where I can focus 100% on my ballet technique, take my mind off other things, and just work really hard on getting better. Uh, My least favorite would probably just be, it's a beautiful art form, but it's also very painful. So point shoes, kind of unnatural positions, injuries, they're all part of the journey to create beautifully, but they're not exactly the best part of it. I can believe that. (laughs) It's a very vigorous training process, and um, you can see documentaries on YouTube portraying that side effect of performing such a beautiful dancing act. It's so cool that you can also apply analytical skills. You performed in some major acts. What is your mind state when you are on the stage? Do you think about all the people watching you or you're really focused on getting the moves right? What What is going through your head at the time? I think the goal in all the rehearsals we do is to basically make all the difficult movements we're doing so natural that you don't really have to think about it when you go on stage and so when you go on stage you think about your technique but you can also think about how to express yourself and how to perform for the audience being very stable and confident in how you perform those different movements but also having that interaction with the audience to make it exciting and enjoyable yeah exactly and what would be your dream role um i'd have to say either giselle or odette from swan lake Both of them have really magnificent music. Uh, Swan Lake has Tchaikovsky's famous score and also beautiful choreography and costuming, but paired with heartbreaking, beautiful stories. And so I think those two are both my favorite ballets and my favorite characters. Those really are magnificent. I've seen um, the Swan Lake performed by actually a Russian ballet group, and it was truly breathtaking. Yeah, it's just so beautiful. So if that happens, just let me know because I'm really you want to get that role. <laughs> and you also play classical piano and violin. Um, when we were talking about science and your hobbies, I love seeing that the interconnection between science and art takes place in so many diverse forms. Do you see connections between those two fields? Yes, definitely. So they both share elements of creativity and systematic or methodical study. So music we think of as inherently creative, but it's uh, science is actually also very creative, even though it is also super systematic. So if you think about it, when you have new ideas and new combinations or synergies between ideas, that's creative in itself. And the creativity also comes in when you need a new way to think about a problem. On the other hand, we know that science is very systematic. You do lots and lots of experiments, finding sample sizes, statistics. But learning music also takes 
hours and hours of methodical, diligent practice and dedication that's very similar to the systematic way we go about science. So in that way, with both my music and art and science, the combination of rigor and creativity really creates an amazing end product. It really is true that those seem like um, two different entities, but there are so many interconnections. Um, and even when we are thinking about neurological terms, the communication between our left brain and right brain are so intertwined and interconnected that you cannot separate the two, but still they hold different characteristics. One is more analytical and more language focused, and the other is um, on the more perceiving end, portraying feelings and emotions when we are talking about music as well. But of course, when you're writing music, you got to have structure and order to create a beautiful piece in the end. Yeah, precisely. It's so great that you really embody um, in your hobbies and in your passions those two distinct fields. And in the podcast, there is a section when we are diving deep into the if questions, the hypothetical mm -hmm. part. So if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, of course, we cannot travel to the future, <laughs> who you choose and why? Hmm. I would have to say probably one of my favorite physicists right now and the person I choose is Dr. Jim Peebles. He is a Princeton physicist and was a 2019 Nobel laureate in physics. He is a pioneering theoretical cosmologist. Basically, he thinks about the big models and processes we have for the origins of the universe. And I saw his lecture at an American Physical Society meeting in April. Basically, he's more or less the founding father of modern concordance cosmology or the most widely accepted theory. He spent over 50 years of work developing the field from really what was just uh, like random metaphysics, you know, what if this happened, to giving it respectability and a quantitative and observable side. He was a leader also in developing Lambda CDM, which is basically the model of the universe that combines cold dark matter and a cosmological constant which is dark energy, in the framework of general relativity. And so that's been extremely well supported by observation and simulations today. He also made tons of other major contributions. I'm surely can't list them all, but things like the nucleosynthesis of elements in the Big Bang, uh, dark matter halos around galaxies, and the cosmic microwave background. I think it would be great to just sit down, really understand the process of developing a field and giving it the respectability it didn't have before and also giving it really just a t make turning a field from something barely anyone thought about to something that has thousands of people working on it introducing a constant internal relativity is truly a milestone and with those diverse research discoveries uh what would you ask him like what would be the topic of your conversation? How would you approach that situation? I'd really love to understand how he gets, how he comes up with ideas, where, like, who he talks to, um, how, how long it took him to get through them, and then also just how he managed to keep going, even when people didn't necessarily respect the work he was doing, or they thought of it as kind of almost a pseudoscience, and so how he managed to combine his mathematical abilities, his uh, astrophysics knowledge, his physical knowledge, all together to create a field that's now one of the most respected and popular fields in astronomy today. 
And what you've said that, you know, combining fields, I think, has been a, a newer addition to the field of science, like biotechnology or quantum computation. You can list them all because in the past few decades, or if you think back to the 20th century, it hasn't really been on display. But I think that with the amount of knowledge produced in the last couple of years, it's been really on the forefront of science. And I think he is truly a pioneer in that field. So uh, what an amazing meeting that would be. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. it would be awesome. Well, I hope it will really take place, perhaps in a future conference <laughs> or meeting that you will attend and then have a dinner afterwards. <laughs> the next is the this or that game. So, of course, you got to choose either or. Okay. All right. So the first one is early bird or night owl? Definitely a night owl. Of course, you got to... <laughs> You got pictures. Yeah, I haven't thought it through. <laughs> the next one is pop or uh, rock? Um, I'd say I prefer pop music. It's just like less stressful, I think. <laughs> yes, that that's definitely uh, a plus, especially since you've been trained in classical music and um, rock and classical music are like water and fire. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And what would your uh, go-to song be or your tune you love listening um, to? It's actually a classical piece. So Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto in, I think, B-flat minor. It's one of my favorite pieces. Tchaikovsky. I, I actually love Tchaikovsky. And I think that he is one of the most brilliant musicians. Yeah, definitely. Both with his work for violin, piano, orchestra, and then also with his ballets. Absolutely. They are so touching, dramatic and thoughtful and very systematic at, at the same time. Yes. And the next one is swimming or hiking? Uh, I would have to say hiking, I think. I just really like, um, even if it's a hard hike, you get to the top and you get to look around at the beautiful earth. You see the beauty of nature. Yeah. So even though I was once a swimmer, I would still pick hiking. Oh, really? And did you enjoy swimming during your training or was it a shorter period? Uh, it was a um, a couple of years, I think, that I swam mostly when I was younger. But I just think like there's not as great of a reward at the end. You're just kind of going in circles. You can just hit the wall. I love hitting <laughs> the wall. <laughs> yes, but it's true. Uh, what we did during swimming practice, because I also swam when I was younger, is that we pretended to be the mermaids from age two oh, and kind of <laughs> introducing the fantasy aspect to the rigorous training <laughs> films or tv shows i think i prefer tv shows because they fit they fit better into a really busy schedule so you can if a film it's like two hours you have to really block out time for it but if you just want to watch one episode of a tv show that can be as little as 20 minutes yeah i mean it's more efficient in that manner <laughs> that <laughs> and the last one is going with the flow or following a plan? I think um, I do better when I follow a plan. If I go with the flow, sometimes I end up for hours on TikTok. So, you know, <laughs> I do like to make Are you a TikToker? Uh, I've never made a TikTok, but I do like watching TikTok. Okay, do you have a theme on TikTok? Because it's grown out to be this massive community, but you can find subsections on TikTok as well. Do you have a favorite? 
Um, not really. I do uh, follow a couple of like the scientists TikToks. So people that work in labs that make TikToks about their lab life. Um, Sutherland Physics is one of my favorites. He basically talks about the life of being a physics teacher. They're all there's so many such a diverse uh, number of topics on TikTok. It's really amazing. It truly is amazing. It's turned out to be this new form of communication. Yeah, it really has. The last question, which truly encapsulates everything we've been talking about, what does science mean to you? I think if I had to summarize it like really quickly, I'd say it's basically the methodical and creative pursuit of truth about the universe. And so you're building and improving the models of the universe that can really replicate everything you see and everything that happens. And, you know, if your model doesn't work, you just make it better and you keep building on the knowledge that humans have as a society. It's great that you focused on truly getting the gist of thinking beyond your borders and viewing science as part of a greater whole, since you are truly investing the universe and its beauties mm -hmm. and intricacies. Yeah really reflects that internal motivation of yours and thank you for expanding on your research work on the wonders of the universe and all of the cool projects you've been working on including outside of the projects work as well like your ballet career and your musical aspirations so uh, thank you for coming on the podcast yeah i'm so happy to be joining the jocka stem gang and thank you for having me Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.